Yes, a little Tony Orlando in Dawn. That song enjoyed a bit of resurgence in the spring of 1991. It was playing all the time. In fact, in the picture, my mom is wearing a shirt with Texas on it and a yellow ribbon on the state of Texas. Welcome back. This is the final episode of Thunder and Lightning, Operation Desert Storm, an American homecoming. The best sight I ever saw in Saudi Arabia during the war was the United Airlines 747 sitting on the tarmac there to take us home. And I have to say, after the war, whenever I could, I would fly United because the crew treated us all like five-star generals on that flight. We retraced our steps that had brought us to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. We stopped in Brussels, Belgium, Bangor, Maine, then on to San Antonio, Texas, and Kelly Air Force Base, all of it on a Sunday. They must have showed us about 10 movies on that flight, but the one I remember the most was the original Home Alone, which most of us had not seen. And of course, the roaring laughter in that climactic scene where Kevin defends a house is something I will never forget. 350 people laughing so hard and so loud. I thought the plane might burst open at parts. And of course, that movie is about the reunion between a mother and her son. And many of us were looking forward to reunions of our own. We landed at Kelly Air Force Base, like I said, on a Sunday evening. Michael Lanz and I were seated on the left-hand side of the plane. Now, if you've ever been to Southwest San Antonio, you will see these massive United States Air Force transport planes flying. They are so big, they look like they're floating in the air. Well, the hangars that are used to perform the maintenance on these huge aircraft are equally large. And so as we touched down and slowed the taxi speed, there was another huge roar that rent the air. You know, we're home. We finally landed safely back on Texas soil. And I was looking out the left window because there was a hangar off to the side of the flight line. And it was lit so brilliantly that my first thought was someone is having a political rally here tonight. It, I could see what looked like you know, thousands of people inside and outside the hangar. I could see the red, white, and blue bunting everywhere. I could see the glint of brass from a band. It just made no sense because it was not an election year. Now, you have to remember, this is March 1991, and just as is the case in March of 2021, 30 years later, springtime is the worst time for me in allergies, which is why my voice may sound a little off today. Well, it's March 1991. No one has a cell phone. No one has a social media account or an email account. I don't even recall if the plane had those little phones in the headrest that you used to be able to use. You know, you'd make a five-minute call, and it would cost you $3,000, whatever it was. And I didn't have a credit card anyway. My point is I fully expected when we got back that Sunday night a long night of getting on buses, traveling back to the armory, maybe even sleeping on the floor at the armory, and then waiting you know, in line for hours to, to get on the phone and call someone to come pick you up. Myself and perhaps none of us on that flight had any idea that it had been arranged to be met by our loved ones at Kelly Air Force Base. 30 years later, I still have no idea how they pulled that off. I asked my mom and she doesn't remember either. As that roar of celebration of safely touching down subsided, I said out loud, our families are here. I, mean, I was incredulous. I couldn't believe it. As more and more of us realized that, the plane went nuts again. You know, our our mildly eccentric commander comes on and confirmed what we all now knew, that, yep, our families are here to greet us. You know, and I, I get chills now just thinking about it. You know, he's, he's on, the, on the, you know, intercom saying, hey, make sure you, you know, tighten up your uniform. Let's look good as we step off 
I was wearing my last good uniform that I'd saved for the flight home. I had never worn it during the war. It was an old uniform from my active duty days in the Army from Fort Ord, and I had the standard brown sweater on underneath for a couple of reasons. First, I knew flying at altitude is cold, and second, that sweater gave me a bit of heft because I probably lost 10 pounds during the war. My nightly habit before the war of polishing off a pint of Bluebell ice cream had been something I had to give up when I went to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and I didn't want my parents and family to see how slender I had become considering. I was already very, very lean to begin with, and so the entire plane is just buzzing with excitement and anticipation to be reunited with our loved ones. And then the pilot came on and asked everyone to be silent for a minute because he had an announcement to make, and this is something that I will never forget. If you are not of a certain age, you will, you will very likely not remember the way Vietnam veterans were treated when they came home. There were no parades. There were no welcome home ceremonies. I grew up in a military community, and, and the attitude in the professional military was that the Vietnam veterans had fought very well, and they had. The American military in Vietnam won every single major engagement, but a war that was mismanaged by the political powers in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere led to the notion that America had lost the war in Vietnam, and that's how the veterans of that conflict were treated. In some cases, they were treated very, very badly or simply ignored. No one ever said it out loud during Desert Storm, but there was an unspoken understanding that we were going to do it right this time and that we were going to do it for the Vietnam veterans. Well, in the 217th Evacuation Hospital, we had some men and women who had served in Vietnam. And so the pilot asked for our attention, and then he said these words exactly. He said, we've talked about it up front with your commander, and we're going to let our Vietnam veterans get off the plane first. In a unit of over 300 men and women, we had about a dozen or so Vietnam veterans, and what transpired next is something I still cannot talk about without just feeling very emotional about it because I grew up around Vietnam veterans who were not treated well. Such a scene only happens once in a lifetime. I mean, I've had to edit out so much silence here. As those Vietnam veterans came down the two aisles on that 747, it was absolute mayhem. I've never been in a locker room after a Super Bowl win or in a locker room after a World Series win, but this was louder, more earnest, and far more forthcoming. One of the older female nurses who had served in Vietnam came down our aisle. I remember I grabbed her by the shoulders and I kissed her on both cheeks and I, I felt her tears coursing down her face and we just hugged and kissed and high-fived all of those Vietnam veterans as they came down the aisles, and they were the first to deplane into this throng of jubilant people, an American homecoming for them, 20 years deferred. And then it was our turn. We deplaned to the strains of patriotic music and this roaring crowd. It had to be over a thousand people. I'm making my way through this massive crowd of people. Uh, I, the first person I came upon that I knew and was very surprised to see was my mom's dear friend from church, Diane Guzman. And she grabbed me by the arm. Oh, Jason, Jason, welcome home. Uh, your, your family's over here. And so she's leading me through this massive crowd. And as we made our way through the crowd, I caught sight of the familiar red of my high school alma mater, 
Converse Judson High School. My youngest sister, Rachel, was a varsity cheerleader. And when I saw that red of her jacket, that's when it hit me. I was home. I found my mom was there with my dad. Um, she had friends from church there, Blanche Garcia, Jeanette Guzman, Diane's daughter, and of course my sisters. They're holding this big balloon bouquet. This, this podcast could be 10 hours long, and I would not be able to describe the joy and happiness felt that evening at a hangar at Kelly Air Force Base amidst a crowd of just flag-waving Americans and the hundreds of these little reunions that were going on all around me. And up to that point, just, just the greatest night of my life. Uh, just, just amazing. There's no replicating it. It, it. it can't be replicated. It doesn't ever happen again, and it hasn't. Well, we had come home on a Sunday, and, and we were told we would have Monday off and then report to the Armory on Tuesday to begin out-processing of the active-duty Army and back to our normal monthly reserve duties. By 10.30, Sunday night, same Sunday that we had left Saudi Arabia, I was sitting in my parents' family room, eating Doritos, watching the sitcom Cheers reruns that came on after the 10 o'clock news. As it had been my habit before the war on work nights, I watched the 10 p.m. news, a Cheers rerun, and then I went to bed. Back in Saudi Arabia, when the Scud missiles were fired at Riyadh, the siren that would go off sounded like this. And as more and more people picked up, it would get louder. And so it had that sound to it. Well, the concern over the Scud missiles and the possible chemical weapons that could be attached to them never diminished during the war. And in fact, it got worse. As the war got you know, closer and closer to the end, the more we worried that Saddam Hussein would finally decide to shoot chemical weapons into Riyadh and elsewhere. And so the air raids and the Scud alerts, although most of them were faults, it was always very stressful to hear that alarm go off and have to get masked up, waiting sometimes for hours for the all clear. Well, my parents lived very close to Randolph Air Force Base on the northeast side of San Antonio in Universal City, and there's a train track that runs right in front of the base. In fact, when I was thinking about doing this show a couple Saturdays ago, I was in Universal City, and the a train came through, and just like it did that night, on that, that March night back in 1991, late at night, a train came through that intersection there in front of Randolph Air Force Base and laid on the horn, and it sounded like, I, I rolled out of the bed in my parents' guest room. I reached up for my pillow because I had slept on my gas mask during the war, so I always had it with me. And then I said in a clear voice, Mike, mask up. Then I realized I was sitting on carpet, not a cement floor. I could hear the hum of the AC that was running outside the house, and, and I realized what I had heard. Yeah, it, was an, it, was a, it was a train, and I realized, obviously, I'm not in Riyadh. I'm in Universal City at my parents' home, and my heart resumed its place, and I got back into bed, and I went to sleep. Uh, not since that night. I have never had or don't remember ever having another dream or that kind of memory about the war. There are certain songs that will remind me of that time period, but that was it. That was my only little moment where the, the war kind of interrupted my sleep, and it, it's never happened since. Well, 
I woke up the next morning. It was Monday, and my mom and dad were off to work, and my sister Rachel was off to school, but my grandmother lived with us. And then when I walked into the kitchen, it was another small reunion with my beloved French grandmother, Rita, who had lived with us since I was in fourth grade. My grandmother was my Yahtzee partner, my confidant, my biggest fan. And unfortunately, in less than a year, my grandmother would die of lupus, a cruel irony that a woman who never drank would die of liver failure. Well, my grandma was in the kitchen waiting to make me whatever I wanted for breakfast, and she did. She made a breakfast that would have fed about 40 people, and it was, it was great. After breakfast, I got dressed and headed over to Randolph Air Force Base. Um, I had bought a shirt in Riyadh that said Hard Rock Cafe, Kuwait City. Now, I don't know if there's a Hard Rock, Hard Rock Cafe in Kuwait City or if there was. That's what it said on the front. And on the back, it said, We Will Iraq You Desert Shield. And it had some Arabic lettering on it. And to this very day, 30 years later, when I go to see my parents in Universal City, it's not uncommon to see someone I knew from the Judson High School days back when I was young. So to be perfectly honest, I was enjoying the attention and wanted people to know I had just gotten back from the war. You know, I'd been out of high school for five years. I only had a year of college under my belt. I was feeling a little behind before the war to begin with. And so I wanted people to know, hey, I'd done my part. You know, I'd, I'd done my little bit there in, in Desert Storm. And so um, I had that shirt on. I went to Randolph Brooks Federal Credit Union on Randolph Air Force Base to check my account because in those days, if you wanted to check your account, you did not pick up your phone. You got in your car and you drove to the ATM machine at your particular banking brand. And when I checked my balance, I couldn't believe it. I had over $1,800 in my account. It may as well have won the lottery. That's what it was like. And before the war, I, very often I would write the old check on Thursday, if payday was Friday, you know, floating the funds to the next day. Well, since I had a little money in the bank, you know, I took some money out, and the next place I went uh, to was HEB. That's our big grocery store chain here in Texas, really to load up on all the things, bluebell ice cream among them, that I had, that I had missed during the war. Now, it's absolutely true that the war changed the trajectory of my life. But what happened next probably had the most long-term impact on me that's connected to the war that directly leads to me doing the work I do to this very day. As I was walking out of the grocery store, back to the car, I saw a familiar face coming towards me. It was someone I had gone to high school with. It was a, a black guy named Charles, but we all called him Chuck. You know, we were not really tight friends. We had some classes together, you know, just buds who would say, one of them, oh, yeah, Jason, he's cool. Yeah, Chuck, he's cool. He saw me and said, hey, Jason, did you just get back? And I said, yes, that I had just last night. You know, shared a quick bro hug there in the parking lot. And then he said, hey, you know what? Come here. I've got a welcome home gift for you. I was like, wow, thank you. I had no idea what he was talking about, but I followed him to his car, which is a really, which was a really nice tricked-out Datsun 280Z with the rims and the curb feelers and all that stuff. Well, he opened the passenger door and reached into his glove compartment, and I have to issue the PG-13 warning here, and handed me a marijuana cigarette that was roughly the size of my index finger. Enjoyed, he said, and you know, we bro-hugged it out again and said our goodbyes. And I've not seen Chuck since, you know, 30 years later. Well, obviously, I could not smoke that because I was still in the Army, and we were about to do out-processing, which was going to involve a whole battery of medical screenings, which could include a drug test, and so I was not taking any chances. And so I just when I got home. I put it in a box with some mail and some letters and things my parents had been sent saving for me and just really forgot about it. Well, 
10 years later, in 2001, I was working from home, and I had the news on in the background, and I heard, 10 years ago today, Desert Storm ended, CNN kind of thing. And I was like, oh, that's right. I looked down. It was February 28th. 1991. I thought, wow, 10 years ago, man, it really, really flies by. And I, and I think, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take the afternoon off. I'm going to celebrate this, you know, 10 years. It gives me an excuse to take the afternoon off. And I think I'm going to go fishing and just, just take the afternoon to myself. Well, before leaving, I went into the garage to find the box where I kept all my old Desert Storm souvenirs and things like that, the letters, the postcards, the Pepsi can with the Arabic writing on it, pictures that I had not looked at in, in many years. And as I was going through everything, yep, you guessed it, Chuck's welcome home present fell out. And yes, I took it with me fishing. Well, later that afternoon, amidst the haze of Chuck's gift, I was hit with an idea an inspiration. I had bought a package of fishing lures and I removed the paper part from the, from the packaging and wrote down the word generations and then some notes about this idea I had for a spoken presentation that looked at how to market banking products. As I was in banking, I worked for EDS, the banking division. Um, I was selling internet banking and bill pay services to banking brands in those days because it wasn't common to have internet banking at every single banking brand in America. And so I had this idea, and it would, it would be a presentation that would introduce each generation with a picture that the generation would recognize and a song from each generation that the people from that generation would recognize. That was my inspiration that day. Well, the next day, using the old yellow pages, the phone book, I called Randolph Brooks Federal Credit Union and Broadway National Bank and asked for the training department. To my surprise, first of all, both people answered the phone. And I said, my name is Jason Dice. I have an hour-long presentation on generational marketing that I think you will enjoy. To my everlasting surprise, both said, you know what? That sounds interesting. Let's set up a time to meet. Well, Chuck, wherever you are, I would go on to work as a professional speaker for the next 12 years, giving that generation's keynote over 400 times on three continents and in every state in the union except Delaware. It is why I live in this house, and it would lead me to starting a companion company called Eloquent Online that I founded in 2005 and that I still run to this very day, perhaps all inspired by Chuck's illegal welcome home gift and an afternoon of fishing. 10 years apart. Well, back to March of 1991, after a week of vacation in Rhode Island, I came home back and went, went home and went back to work at the Texas Med Clinic. That job I'd worked one day uh, before being activated in December of 1990. And it was very strange, just going into work like nothing had happened. And while I was working at Texas Med Clinic, there I met a young doctor, Dr. John Reiner, who introduced me to the game of golf. 30 years later, we still hit and play golf together, and 30 years later, I'm still trying to get my swing to look as good as Dr. Reiner's. Mike Alonzo, who you've heard me mention so many times, is one of the best soldiers I ever knew. He possessed the quality that you just have to have in a soldier. He was dependable, and he never 
panicked. And that is, that is a combination that you have to have in stressful situations. And Mike was a great, great young soldier. Today, he is a police sergeant in Kirby, Texas, near my childhood home. I went to Kirby Elementary and Kirby Junior High School. He was the first person I called when I decided to do this podcast back in August of 2020. And it's been a great resource and friend and checking my memory of things. And it's been great to reconnect with him and talk about our shared experience. I'm not sure you should ever say a war is fun, but he and John Moya made it so. John Moya, the former Marine bodybuilder, he was the third of our three amigos war family there in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia during the war. Came to see me once at the Texas Med Clinic about a year after the war. But again, it's 1991. We didn't have social media. We didn't have cell phones. And we lost touch. I saw him here in New Braunfels at the grocery store about 10 years ago, but, but there was clearly something going on in his life, some trouble, and it just wasn't the time for a reunion, and I have not seen or spoke to him since. I, I hope he's doing well. He, he was just a wonderful uh, buddy to have during the war. Jerry Resnick, who I had served with in the active duty army at Fort Ord, California, and had been reunited with against all odds because he was sent to our unit be- before we deployed. When he got to Riyadh, he actually went off looking to, to do things. He wanted to be in the real war, and I never really saw much of him during the war. My memories of him will always be tied more to our time at Fort Ord in the 7th Infantry Division than our time in Desert Storm. On August 2nd, 1990, Saddam Hussein invaded the tiny emirate of Kuwait. On December 30th, 2006, he was put to death for crimes against humanity. When I saw the grainy video of him being put to death by hanging, being jeered and mocked by his former subjects, I must confess, maybe to my everlasting shame, I felt sorry for him. I actually did. Without that invasion of Kuwait, I would not be a war veteran. I would not have come home from the war and abandoned my desire to re-enter the Army and pursue a 20-year enlisted career and instead enroll at the University of Texas at San Antonio in the fall of 1991. I would not have been elected the president of the College Republicans at UTSA and therefore would not have been in the Student Activities Office in 1993, the year I graduated with a degree in American History. And there, in the Student Activities Office, I would not have seen a stunningly beautiful girl sitting outside the Director of Student Life's office. And I would not have married her, as I remain married to her today, 26 years later. And I would not have my only child, my beloved son Evan, who is 20 years old in the year 2021. Coming home from the war was the greatest night of my life until the night my son was born. And so all of those things, in some ways, I attribute to Saddam Hussein. And in some weird way, I always feel like I want to thank him. Unfortunately, I don't think I will see him in heaven. In fact, I know I won't. Finally, I want to thank everyone that has listened to the show It has been great reconnecting with many of you through the different social media groups for Desert Storm, um, to my wife and my son, my mother and my father, my brother and my sisters. I want to say it was an honor to represent our family in that war. To my fellow servicemen and women, the over half a million of you who served in Desert Storm, it was an honor to serve with you and to share in the last war America definitively won. And I want to thank the American public, 
The months after the war were one celebration and parade after another, and it was much appreciated. Uh, the unity in our country after Desert Storm was intense, and it came back briefly after September 11th, but here in 2021, it seems like a long time ago. This has been my story of the war as best as I can remember it 30 years later. Desert Storm was a bridge that connected us with the wars of the past and showed us how wars would be fought in the future. It has become lost in many ways, as the Korean War was. You know, the lack of finality on the political front at the end of Desert Storm would lead to another invasion of Iraq in 2003. And when people think of war in Iraq, they naturally think of the wars after September 11th. But for those of us who served in 1990 and 1991, it's up to us to keep that history alive. And I'm pleased that a memorial to the war and those who died in it is scheduled to break ground this year in Washington, D.C. Over 600,000 Americans served in that war. Collectively, we restored the confidence and respect for the American military that endures to this very day, 30 years later. It is that fact that I am most proud of. My name is Jason Dias. God bless you all. God bless America. And may God bless all of my fellow Desert Storm veterans. In the end, Desert Storm was aptly named like any storm, you felt it coming on, you felt it building up. There was thunder and lightning, and then it was over.
Please join in the singing of our national anthem, sung by Grammy Award winner Whitney Houston.